this, it sort of illustrates the fact that, that people do great things for the most ridiculous reasons, and they do ridiculous things that make great art. Ah, that's excellent. Okay, we've been talking with Britta Gordon about Jean Renoir's Rules of the Game and the BFI film classic about it. And Britta will be back next week with another discovery from the world of streaming, independent, and art films. That is correct. Okay, good. All right. Thank you, Britta. Thank you. Well, that's it for Film at 11. We'll be back next week with more holiday films and regular movies, too, on KBOO. Portland Community Radio. And until then, keep watching the screens. Still looking for a way to fit KBOO into your year-end giving? KBOO is in this year's Willamette Week Give Guide. For the last 14 years, Give Guide has raised over $28 million for hundreds of local nonprofits. Support KBOO and learn more about Give Guide by going to kboo.fm/give. Remember, we have a one-to-one match for all new and increasing donations too. Thank you for supporting KBOO. Hi, I'm Brian DeShazer, director of the Pacifica Radio Archives, and welcome to From the Vault, our weekly series that takes our history out of the oldest and largest collection of public radio programming in the United States and puts it back on the radio. On this week's From the Vault, we present a 1975 program that takes an early look at the Unification Church founder, Sun Young Moon, who died September 3rd, 2012. People couldn't help but be attracted to it, you know, it was a very beautiful kind of setting and there was a really minimal amount of information given at these at these uh, seminars. It was just all happiness and love and joy and look at this little world we're building, Ideal City, and wouldn't you like to be here too? You know, it's often when something happens in the news, we are motivated to go look in our archive to see what we had. The question was answered by the title of the program, Who is Reverend Sun Young Moon and what is he up to anyway? Moon was born in what is today North Korea in 1920 when Korea was occupied by Japan. His family converted from the teachings of Confucius to Christianity when Moon was 10 years old and he would move to Japan to get a degree in electrical engineering. He would write the underpinnings of his future church when he penned Divine Principle in 1946. He would begin preaching throughout Korea until his imprisonment by North Korea for spying for South Korea and was given a five-year sentence. He would escape after serving almost three years of that prison term when advancing United Nations troops prompted prison guards to abandon their post. Moon immediately began preaching and would form his Unification Church in 1954. He would then publish his Bible called The Explanation of the Divine Principle in 1957. All of this was mostly unknown to most Americans until he moved to the United States in 1970 and immediately began establishing religious and business interests in major American cities. To help us make sense of who Sun Young Moon was, we reach back to the KPFA producer Addie Gevins, who produced a one-hour special in 1975 called again, Who is the Reverend Sun Young Moon and What is He Up To Anyway? Addie Gevins is the Preservation and Access Coordinator for the Archives, my personal mentor, and is a multi-award winning producer for public radio. Multiple Peabody Awards, producing the Bill of Rights Radio Education Project, the Civil Liberties Radio Education Project, and many other documentaries that are available from the Pacifica Radio Archives. Here is Who is the Reverend Sun Young Moon and What is He Up To Anyway from 1975. 
여러분 기독교 사인 뭐이냐 메시아의 명령과 메시아의 목적에서 방화되는 것이 That was the voice of Reverend Sun Myung Moon, an evangelist from South Korea who has recently completed his third speaking tour of the United States. Who is the Reverend Sun Myung Moon, and what is he really up to anyway? Several weeks, several hundred of young missionaries gathered the different parts of the world, came to the noisy city of San Francisco, made this city even noisier, in the name of God, of course. <laughs> I'm the responsible of that. Furthermore, the young people promoting my appearance tonight at Opera House by posters and the televisions and the news, newspapers and the radios and so forth. So by now, good citizens of San Francisco must be asking, by the way, who is that Reverend Moon? Here I am, Reverend Moon. I'm not that handsome, but I hope, I hope I'm not that ugly either. Thank you very much. Handsome or ugly, when Moon's Day of Hope crusade hits town, his face is hard to avoid. An advanced team of international missionaries from his Unification Church plaster the area with posters, advertising mass rallies, held in vast arenas, Madison Square Garden in New York, War Memorial Opera House in San Francisco. The free rallies are packed by several hundred traveling followers of Moon, who applaud vigorously throughout the three-hour sermon, which is delivered by Moon in Korean and translated by his principal evangelist, Colonel Bo-hee Park. These rallies have been visited by a variety of demonstrations, from Jesus people who call him Antichrist, members of the Jewish Defense League who call him anti-Semitic, and American and Korean political groups who call him fascist. In every city, these rallies are preceded by lavish banquets held for local press and VIPs. Andrew Ross, a reporter who has done extensive research on Moon and his organization, comments. Each rally uh, is estimated to cost up to a half a million dollars. That covers the cost of the lavish banquets that they throw, hiring the hall, um, feeding and housing about three or four hundred of their members who go with them on all the tours, the TV spots, the billboards. I mean, when, when Moon comes to town, you can't miss him. According to Neil Salonen, who is the church president in America, the uh, Unification Church has a budget of $8 million. However, that figure apparently only covers the expenses generated by the Washington headquarters, the Day of Hope Crusades, which occur about once or twice a year in the United States, and other, quote, special projects. That eight million figure does not really um, account for all the income and expenses generated by the entire movement in this country. The entire annual budget must be considerably more. In the past few years, the Moon Movement has grown from a small cult to a vast international conglomerate of religious and political organizations. The apparent wealth of the church, as evidenced by the enormous sums spent on publicity, coupled with a uniform guarded evasiveness towards direct questions from the press, has attracted the attention of several investigative reporters, among them Charles West, who became interested in the movement a year ago after he interviewed Neil Salonen, president of the American branch of the Unification Church. I went to the interview and first thing, you know, was obviously it was a very expensive place and, and one of Berkeley's nicer areas. And that sort of shocked me right there because I usually average religious messiah is, you know, very comfortable, but three new brand new Lincoln Continentals parked in the garage and the house was brand new. And then I think what disturbed me was the security. Between walking up the driveway and getting into the front door, I went by four security people. I think what really got to me was that I went into the interview, and the church sent out someone to pre-interview me. And I'd, I've never had that experience before. I've never had anybody come and try and find out what I'm going to ask and, and sort of psychologically lead me over an obstacle course before he'd let me talk to the person that I wanted to talk to. So finally, we get down to the interview with Neil Salonen, Dale Carnegie graduate, who's a fairly glib fellow. He doesn't talk too straight. He's very, you know, he comes on as being very sincere and warm and friendly. Um, 
But then he dodges issues very skillfully and articulately. Um, he says exactly what he wants to say and does not answer the questions that you put to him. Um, after I left the interview, I thought I'd better run down quickly who owned the property and, and what the situation was and called up a clerk at the Berkeley City Hall. The property had just been purchased three weeks before by an organization called the New Educational Development Systems Incorporated. I decided to find out what this organization was. I ran it down through the Secretary of State's office in Sacramento, and yes, it was listed as a nonprofit corporation, and its address was given as someplace in Oakland. I went back and to my material and started thinking about this, and then I uh, went through a list of addresses of Unification Church and found that that was the Oakland headquarters. The movement does cloak itself in many guises. The church and Moon as an organization goes out of their way generally to obfuscate um, the various organizations. Um, I'll, I'll read off a list that I just made up a couple of minutes ago of various organizations that are connected with, with Moon. Uh, most of them will deny that they are connected with Moon unless you go back and check their directorship, and then you'll usually find some sort of interlocking directorship and then interlocking principles and, and then interlocking membership. The Holy Spirit Association for the Unification of World Christianity is sort of the parent organization of it all. Um, it's often called the Unification Church or the Unified Family. Um, locally, you have the New Educational Development Systems Corporation, the International Re-Education Foundation, which operates the Ideal City Project up in Boonville, and um, for a while operated a thing in San Francisco called the Pioneer Academy. On the East Coast, they run the Korean Cultural Freedom Foundation, which was responsible for an organization called Radio of Free Asia, the Freedom Leadership Foundation, the International Cultural Foundation in New York, and then also locally they just started up an organization which I think is named Institute for Ethical Management. And then they run in Washington also a newspaper called The Rising Tide. Sun Moon's business card also lists the One World Crusade, the Professor's Academy for World Peace, and the International Federation for Victory over Communism. The Unification Church is a strongly hierarchical international organization based on a military-type chain of command headed by Reverend Moon. The entire organization is known as the Family, and Moon is referred to as Father, with a capital F. The Church's 7,000 core members live in a small, austere communal group also referred to as a family. These living groups are dedicated to the study of Moon's theology, especially as embodied in his book, Divine Principle. The Church and its many affiliated organizations own magnificent mansions in which the Church leaders reside, vast country estates which serve as retreats and bases for leadership training programs, and more modest buildings which house the rank and file. Andrew Ross. They have houses in all 50 states and all major cities, their houses are always, almost always to my knowledge, in the best parts of town. Just sticking with the Bay Area for a moment, um, New Educational Development Systems, which is a Unification Church front group, has a house on Hearst, which used to be the old Hearst Castle. Um, they bought that for $120,000. Um, the president of New Educational Development Systems um, is an English teacher at Laney College. His name is Mo Durst. He lives on Avalon Street in Berkeley, the house costs $320,000. Moon lives in an estate in upstate New York, which cost $625,000. Divine Principal Seminars are conducted on an estate which is about half a mile away, which costs $850,000. More recently, they purchased the, the old Christian Brothers Seminary in Barrytown, New York, for $1.5 million. Um, they have an office building just off of DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C. Having an office building off of DuPont Circle is no small potatoes. They have, as you know, 700 acres in Mendocino, which obviously runs into hundreds of thousands of dollars. We're in the money. We're in the money. We've got a lot of what it takes to get along. Church officials claim that all expenses, including the banquets and promotion campaigns for the Day of Hope tours, are financed by family companies. Each commune or family runs several businesses, 
Usually the men run a maintenance company, while the women sell candy or flowers on the street. A portion of the income goes to pay the group's expenses. The rest is turned over to the national organization. Reporter Steve Wasserman asked Colonel Bohee Pak, Moon spokesman, how a multi-million dollar budget could be supported by selling candy. In our training center in New York, mm. they go out for the training purposes, and they are taught how to raise funds, how to sell the things. Every single one of them sells $100 a day. They those dedicated and really expert sellers, several hundred dollars a day. It just is incredible. Even I couldn't believe myself but that is happening in our movement. So even I couldn't believe how could, I, how could the press, you know, superficial looking into our movement, how could they believe? Mm -hmm. But this is possible. This is happening. Why is this happening? Because their utmost, this, this absolute commitment mm -hmm. to the cause and their sense of uh, their dedication is so absolute. Uh, miracle is always there. A former church member explains the selling techniques. I remember going to offices, going to houses, going to any kind of business you can imagine and saying, hello, I'm from New Education Development. That was the name that we used. I'm from New Education Development and I'm trying to raise some money for youth programs and would you like to contribute? One well, very rarely did anybody ask me, what is this really for? You know, When they did ask me, I would lie and so did everyone else. We never exposed the fact that we were related to Sun Moon, never. Um, it was always youth programs in the community, but it was really expected, if you wanted to move up in the hierarchy of the house, to sell all the flowers. And um, the girls who sold a, a lot of flowers, particularly in the bars and things like that in San Francisco, were highly respected in the house, just, I mean, you know, top notch. A substantial fortune could certainly be made by a highly motivated working force, laboring long hours without charge, especially if they are blessed with divine assistance. Of course, there may be more mundane forces at work. During the last tour, church officials consistently denied persistent rumors that the movement receives funds from the South Korean government, right-wing Japanese businessmen, or the Central Intelligence Agency. Neil Salani, president of the American Unification Church, presents Moon's official biography at banquets and rallies. Reverend Sun Young Moon was born in 1920 in part of what is now North Korea. You probably know at that time the country was not divided as it is today, but the entire peninsula was under the domination of the Japanese. And because they were seeking to establish a pagan state religion, they were merciless in their persecution of religious groups, particularly Christians. Nevertheless, in that difficult environment, Reverend Moon was raised as a Christian. While his friends were spending their time in lighter pursuits, he would often spend long hours studying the Bible, deep in prayer, seeking to understand God's will for man and for his country. In 1936, on Easter morning, when he was deep in prayer, Jesus Christ appeared to him and said that he had been chosen by God for a great mission with which Jesus would work with him for the rest of his life. Now is the time when God wanted to bring all of his Christian groups together and to form one family of man in preparation for the time of the second coming. What a tremendous message of hope and of joy. After the liberation from the Japanese at the end of World War II, he went to his native home and there began to preach, and many, many were attracted to him. So many that the communist authorities in the North regarded him as a person dangerous to the state, and he was thrown into one of the most hideous prison camps in northern Korea. In 1950, when the UN forces landed, his prison camp was freed, and he fled to the southern tip of the peninsula. There, in the most humble surroundings, he began the Unification Church. Andrew Ross presents a less romantic, but better documented version of church history. The church started in the late 40s as a very bizarre, off-the-wall kind of Pentecostal movement with very, very few supporters. Um, he got established officially in Seoul in 1954. Now, at that time in South Korea, Syngman Rhee, who was then the president of South Korea, was a dictator, but nevertheless was on, he was himself a Christian and remained on very good terms with the Christian church. 
1961, that really all changed. When Syngman Rhee got overthrown in 1960, there was a brief civilian government, and then Park Chung-hee and other military officers overthrew the civilian government and took power. And it seems that from that time onwards, the unification church really took off. Why is this? It's, it's not entirely clear. Um, one of the characteristics of the Park Chung-hee regime has been to consistently repress and rather viciously the traditional Christian church in South Korea and at the same time be very friendly with this somewhat bizarre unification religion. One explanation for the close relationship between the unification movement and the Park regime can be developed by examining the background of Moon's principal evangelist, Colonel Bo-hee Park. Park graduated from the Korean Military Academy shortly before the Korean War. According to his official biography, he is a graduate of the U.S. Army Infantry School and served as aide-de-camp to the Chief U.S. Military Advisory Group in Korea and to the Korean Vice Minister of National Defense after the Armistice of 1953. When Park Chung-hee took power, Bo-hee Park was sent to Washington as a military attaché in the South Korean embassy. Military attachés are usually pretty important figures in embassies, particularly as there was such a close military link between South Korea and the United States. And also military attachés, particularly those military attachés who have a command of languages, which Bohee Park does, are often used in intelligence activities. Bohee Park arrives in Washington in 1961. Park Chung-hee has taken over in South Korea, and significantly, the first American branch of the Unification Church is established in Southern California. In the early 60s, the church mainly concentrated on building up its support in South Korea and in Japan. However, as the traditional Christian church was being repressed by the government of Park Chung-hee, the only, quote, Christian who could move around with absolute freedom of maneuver was Sun Myung-moon. He was also allowed to build up a vast industrial empire in that time. He is estimated to be worth about $15 million. His industrial holdings in South Korea are estimated to be worth about $100 million. Now, in the context of South Korean politics and South Korean economics, you don't build an industrial empire unless you have the full support of the South Korean government. Um, he has titanium works, ginseng tea factories, and perhaps most significantly of all, one of the most modern machine tool factories in South Korea, which produces air guns and parts for M16 rifles, which go to supply the 600,000 strong South Korean army. Some part of Moon's personal fortune is probably used to back the church and the movement's other tax-exempt organizations. Another possible source of funds might be large donations. It's interesting that Salonen refers to the kind of repression that uh, Moon and other Christians suffered in South Korea during the Japanese occupation, uh, because President Park himself uh, was an officer in the Imperial Japanese Army during the Second War, and certain Japanese imperialists, who were at least in part responsible for the repression of Korean Christians, are now among Moon's major allies. Polkishi Nobusuki heads Moon's International Federation for the Victory Over Communism in Japan. Kishi was a member of the Imperial Japanese Wartime Cabinet. Um, he was briefly in Sugamo Prison, classified as a Class A war criminal after the war, and went on to become Prime Minister of Japan in 1957 through 1961. He's now one of Moon's major allies. Another Japanese imperialist named Sazagawa Ryoichi um, is largely rumored to be one of Moon's major backers in Japan, before the war, Sazagawa was an extremely powerful financier and was one of the godfathers of the Japanese underworld. He was an avowed expansionist uh, who also found himself in Sugama prison at the end of the war as a Class A war criminal, uh, managed to avoid prosecution and became uh, once again an extremely powerful Japanese financier, industrialist and behind-the-scenes political manipulator. Church officials in this country deny that Sazagawa is actually a member of the Unification Church in Japan, but uh, Colonel Bohi Park um, admitted that Sazagawa is Moon's chief ally in the battle against communism. Moonies who joined the ranks during the Day of Hope Crusades were impressed by Moon's theology and the official version of church history. 
Most recruitment activity, however, is carried out under the auspices of such front groups as the Ideal City Project or New Education Development, and Moon is never mentioned in the process. The majority of the young converts are attracted to communal life and the religious enthusiasm of family members rather than by Moon and his theology. There was a group of people who were specifically sent out to recruit people, and most of them were sent out on campus. There was a table on campus usually set up, and usually four or five of us were there for at least part of the day, walking up to people who would walk by the table. And there was a whole process, a very, what we consider to be spiritual process involved with this, and that we would look at somebody, and if they looked at us, they were meant to be talked to, you know. Or if they even glanced at the poster, we would go after them. And I remember my first days of doing this, I was scared to death because I really didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have any idea really what Divine Principle was all about yet. All I knew was that I was living with a group of people that I loved, you know, really. I loved some of those people, and uh, it was a tremendous communal experience, and I wanted to bring other people into it and share it with them. And uh, I was really scared to death, despite the fact that I don't consider myself to be shy. There was this person there that I had to convince to bring home and see we would get merit points for bringing people home to dinner and um, be threatened with being kicked out of our particular group if we didn't bring people home for dinner or if we didn't get people to the weekend seminars you know there was tremendous pressure to get spiritual children and the only way you could do that was by talking to every human being who looked you in the eyes you know and uh, using what you consider to be your personal power to get them under your spell, you know, that's pretty much what it was all about. You didn't really reveal what you were doing, you just made them fall in love with you, you know, because you, f you figured they would never buy what you had to say, because it was so bizarre. They will tell you anything that you want to hear. I did it for two and a half months. Anything that anybody was into, I was into too, you know. I could just be into that, but also be into the moon, moon movement, you know, and that moon was universal, and he encompassed everything. Um, Buddhists I talked to, um, Hare Krishna people, people who were just basically into meditation, or I Ching, or yoga. Yes, yes, I do that too. I'm into that too. We have people in the house who can talk to you about that. Um, come to us, you know, we're universal. After attending several dinners, potential members are pressured into attending a weekend seminar on the family's country land. They have quite a bit of land up, up in Boonville. Beautiful land. This was another this was another real seller for the movement that they would have weekend seminars up in uh, the mountains up in Boonville with um, just tremendous food. We had this bridge that went over a river. It was so ideal, and here, you know, would be all of these people happy singing. We played dodgeball over the weekend, and people couldn't help but be attracted to it. You know, it was a very beautiful kind of setting, and there was a really minimal amount of information given at these at these uh, seminars. It was just all happiness and love and joy, and look at this little world we're building, Ideal City. And wouldn't you like to be here, too? And at the end of the weekend, you kind of declare your loyalty to the group or that you agree with what you've heard so far and even maybe that you want to move into the house. And then there's big celebration, you know, and everybody loves you and wants you there. And uh, you have no idea of the psychological impact of a thing like that. It is difficult to understand the missionary zeal of the Moonies until the deeper teachings of Moon's theology are revealed. You are listening to the 1975 investigative report on the Reverend Sun Young Moon produced by Addie Gevins. Addie Gevins would revisit the subject of the Reverend Sun Young Moon when she produced the 1980 Silver Gavel Award-winning program Holy Incompetent, Conservatorship, Laws, Deprogramming, and Religious Freedom as the first program in her Civil Liberties Radio Education Project series. If you would like to get a copy of this program or any of the other programs in our series, visit us online at pacificaradioarchives.org or you can listen to archival programs from the series at fromthevaultradio.org. And now back to some of the best original reporting on the Reverend Sung Young Moon from 1975, done by Addie Gevins. For 2,000 years, 
The Christians of the world have been looking forward to one culminating day. The day, as prophesied in the Bible, the coming and the return of the Lord Christ. 주님이 오시면은 기독교는 물론이요 이 세계에 새로운 변화를 일으켜 영광의 세계로 들어갈 것은 틀림없다고 보는 것입니다. This is indeed the hope of mankind, the day of the coming of the Lord, and since God promised, this promise will indeed be fulfilled. Rabbi Maurice Davis, founder of Concerned Citizens Against the Unification Church, describes the secret teachings of Moon. The theology of Moon, I can give it to you very simply, is that God uh, decided to create a perfect world, and he chose Adam and Eve to be the perfect parents, but that they blew it because Eve had intercourse with the serpent, and her blood became polluted. So that messed it up. And so God tried a second time with Jesus to be the perfect uh, father. But Jesus was killed by the Jews, according to Moon, uh, before he could marry the perfect mate and create a perfect world. And the third time will be with Moon, who will be the third Adam and the second Messiah, who will have married a perfect mate. Now, when Moon married his fourth wife, I think she was 18 at the time, he announced that she was the perfect mate and she was Mother Eve or Mother Universe or something. Charles West. In this country, for public relations purposes, he's billed as the John the Baptist of the Second Advent. In Korea, they're a little more obvious and say that he is the second, second Messiah. A lot of his writings and a lot of the church's beliefs go towards um, the, the second Messiah will arise from Korea and um, most church members if approached carefully and after some discussion, they will admit that yes, they do believe that he is, is the second Messiah. God's way of fulfillment is not the man's way. Sometimes he acts very strange way. Jesus came very strange way. Therefore, when the Messiah comes, however strange, strange way he manifests himself into our world, we must know he is indeed the leader of the world. As far as I knew, it was a Christian movement that was much more a human movement, you know, of people who were concerned about the state of the world and that we needed love along with politics, you know. He comes into it very gradually. There are pictures of him around. But it's always, um, you ask, who is this person? Well, he's Korean. He's one of the people who started the movement. Um, later, it starts coming out about how much he suffered in prison, what a strong individual he is, how disciplined he is. And he's put up kind of as a model, initially, of what we should strive to be. Being the Messiah is the last thing that is ever said to anybody because they just figure that they won't be able to handle it, you know, they'll just think it's absurd. And one of the reasons they don't say it is they think if you reject the idea, then you're doomed. You know, if you're given a chance to accept it and you reject it, you know, you're in hell. And they don't want to put a person to that, so they take responsibility for it. You know, if they tell somebody too early, then they're taking responsibility for sending someone to hell. God intended in the beginning, first, one man of perfection, one family of perfection, one model children of perfection. Then God would have been multiplying or expanding this model of perfection into tribe, into nation, into world. Indeed, this world would have been filled by the children of God. 
Moon's task as the new Messiah is to restore the world to God's original perfect conception. Since humanity strayed by disobeying God's will, the first commandment of the coming age is total obedience to God as represented by his messenger. When the kingdom of heaven is manifested on earth, every human being will be a child of God. In the perfect world, everyone will also be part of a perfect nuclear family. As many people as possible must attain perfection before the presence of the Messiah on earth is revealed to the uninitiated. Perfection, according to Moon, is a transformation of body and soul that can be accomplished by following his divine principle. The austere life of the disciples who live in the family houses is designed to accomplish this end. They give you two weeks of, of uh, adjusting and losing your ego is kind of what it's called, you know, because suddenly your desires mean nothing. You know, the whole philosophy is to give to other people, which I found was exactly what I needed because I was disgusted with my own selfishness, you know, and I wanted to do something. And they were telling me, well, here's your chance. You just lose your own ego and you lose your own desires. And you achieve perfection after a certain period of time. They give you actually about three years. And I'm not being flippant about that either. You know, there's a period of about three years that you're expected to achieve perfection within that time. When perfection is attained, one is entitled to marry a perfect mate, chosen by Moon. Before that time, men and women are separated in the houses and sexual contact is strictly forbidden. All members of a family are considered to be sisters and brothers, as well as children of the house director. Daily life in the house is a totally regulated training process designed to lead each individual to the perfect state, provide monetary support for the movement, and win converts to the cause. First of all, it begins in the morning, getting up at quarter or five in the morning, every morning. And there's one person usually responsible for getting up the girls. And it, we are girls in the house. We're not women. I don't care if we're 50. We're still girls. Then a, a boy gets up the boys downstairs. We sep slept in uh, separate levels of the house. We have to be at prayer at five o'clock in the morning. And prayer lasts for 15 minutes. And then uh, we go out for exercises at 5.15. And then we come back in and clean the house. And usually we have breakfast at 6, and uh, or prayer again at 6, and then breakfast, and then, um, oh, singing. The spirit was tremendous of sitting around a table with all of your brothers and sisters, you know, and sharing love of God, love of human being, and you are all moving towards perfection, and what fun, you know, or uh, uh, what importance you have, you know. Anyway, after that... Um, we would go out to our jobs. Um, I did flower selling, and we would go out at 7 and stay out until all the flowers were sold, which would sometimes take until 9 or 10 o'clock at night. And we were literally exhausted. We'd come home, we'd have meetings at 10 o'clock again. All the time that we were driving around in the truck, we would be reading Divine Principle or singing songs. Never a moment of rest, never a moment. If anyone ever spaced out, looking to the side, thinking, not singing, not reading, they were snapped out of it immediately, you know, and told to pay attention, you know, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. And uh, that was the main part of the rigor, was keeping you from thinking about anything other than what they were trying to teach you. Despite um, all the physical pressures that were happening, they expected you to be there mentally as well. And uh, 10 o'clock we'd have another meeting in which we'd read Divine Principle again, and talk about it. Usually 11 to 12 we had time to do whatever we wanted to do, but that was the only free time that we ever had. Usually we made it to bed by 12.30 or 1 o'clock and we're up again at quarter or five in the morning and no one was allowed to sleep late. I don't care if you were sick, I don't care if you had tuberculosis, I don't care if you were throwing up, you were up at quarter or five in the morning and praying. As far as I'm concerned, it was so destructive to our health that that was one of the major forms of discipline that they used was to overcome your body, you know. You just get to the point where your body wouldn't need anything, supposedly, you know, by denying it all of its needs. They used to make us um, sell flowers for seven or eight hours at a time without giving us food. And it was uh, really a test of endurance, just a test of endurance. How much can you put up with? How long can you go without eating? How long can you go without sleeping? How, um, how long can you focus your attention on one particular thing? Um, it's kind of 
an extension of the American dream in a way of, of building from absolutely nothing to being tremendous human being, you know, and it's, it's all through an extremely disciplined life. Yes, we must allow ourselves as instruments of God, allow God to run you, so that let him use and do his will, so that I shall become his tool, so that we shall become the entire world be restored. I asked Neil Salanen, president of the American Unification Church, what Moon means when he says, we must allow God to run us. The essence of what he said was that no nothing, no one or no thing in creation was created for itself, but it was always created for someone or something else. So everything exists, it even just, I don't mean it just has a purpose, but even to maintain its existence has to be in relationship with other things. So that eternity is created by the interrelationship of things. So that the way that we make an eternal family or an eternal world is by people all trying to fulfill someone else's life, then in turn someone will try to fulfill theirs. Essentially, the relationship between man and woman is a spiritual relationship because man has a, a spiritual body and a physical body. The spirit lives forever and the body dies. The real relationship that we're seeking to establish between man and woman is a spiritual one, one of love. And in that relationship, there's no reproduction. In other words, reproduction takes place on earth. The real nature of mankind is to exist as such a family. But you have to start from the individual, build to his own personal family. That family has to um, seek to serve the purpose of the higher higher group in each case, the community, the community work to serve the nation, the nation contribute to the world. Moon is the Messiah. Moon has come. It's just that it's his job now, see, to physically uh, rehabilitate the world. And the only way that that can be done is eventually for every human on the earth to be blessed by Moon and have a perfect marriage. And they actually consider that this will happen that this will occur. I used to believe it. Go into the chapel and we're gonna get married. Go into the chapel and we're gonna get married. The emphasis on the bliss of the married state, the celibate life of the unmarried, and the willingness of Moon's followers to be married off in mass ceremonies, often to people whom they've never met, has piqued the curiosity of the press. In addition, there are persistent reports that the purification ritual has not always been so innocent. In the early days um, in the church, the only way that you could be pure was to have intercourse with Moon. Moon was pure, um, so that if you, a woman, wanted to be pure, you would have intercourse with Moon. Your blood would be purified. The ceremony was known as picarum, and consequently, you know, you could pass on your purity to your husband and your children. Moon definitely got into trouble over that particular ceremony in South Korea in 1955. Um, there was a rather major scandal at the Iwa Women's University in Seoul um, in which a number of faculty and students uh, got expelled from the university and Moon was uh, imprisoned for about three months for, quote, communal sex activities. That, uh, that particular phrase was used by Time magazine. These days, apparently, that that ceremony is purely symbolic. Moon blesses you and you're pure, and at the wedding I think they all drink wine. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Let me tell you. After the crucifixion of Jesus, this feeble disciple of Jesus marches toward Rome, Rome, hostile empire. And in four centuries, the Roman Empire collapsed in front of Jesus' barehanded army. What would have happened if Jesus, as a living king of Israel, brought the entire forces of heaven marched toward Rome? Do you think he would not have a capability to unify the Roman Empire in his own lifetime? Roman 
Rome and the time of Jesus was the hub of the world. Therefore, in order to bring his gospel to entire every corner of the world, Rome was the center of his ministry. Then, winning over the Roman Empire in his own lifetime, Jesus indeed brought the later foundation of kingdom heaven here on earth. An essential element of Moon's revelation is that humanity sinned by failing to recognize Christ to be the Messiah while he lived. Because of that error, Christ failed in his mission to create a kingdom of heaven on earth, and the Roman civilization fell as a result. Reporter Steve Wasserman asked Colonel Pock why Reverend Moon has come to America. Reverend Moon came to America for the dispensational purpose, for the providential purpose. That is, Reverend Moon interested in not Korea, but the world salvation of the all mankind. America, according to his opinion, is hub of the world, like a Rome of the first century. And he wanted to start his most, most uh, spectacular or the launching of his uh, international movement here in America. He would like to win America so that he can win the rest of the world for God and Christ. If the world is ever to be saved, Moon must create the kingdom of heaven on earth during his lifetime. To do this, it is essential that he not repeat Jesus' mistake. He must not reveal himself too soon. He must be accepted by the Romans. Moon people are inevitably polite and conservatively dressed so as to offend no one. Another mark of respectability is recognition of public figures. At banquets and rallies, Neil Salanin, president of the American Church, inevitably recites a litany of civic leaders whom, he claims, support Moon. We received many, many telegrams of congratulations and support from men like Senator Humphrey, Senator Buckley, men on both sides of the political aisle, people like Senator Burdick, Senator Proxmire, Senator Irvin, Congressman Dickerson, Congressman Conable, recognizing not the work of one man or one denomination, but the impact of a movement of hope. And when we arrived in the Bay Area, we were very pleased to receive the official greetings from many of the municipalities around here and two proclamations that I'd like to share with you in part. The first reads, on behalf of the people of the city and county of San Francisco, I am pleased to extend greetings to the Reverend Sun Myung Moon, founder of the World Unification Church, and to welcome him to our city on the auspicious occasion of his second visit. I'm sure his message of unity, intended to bring harmony and peace on all levels, will be enthusiastically received. Signed, Joseph Aliono, Mayor of the city of San Francisco. from our sister city nearby. The Reverend Sun Myung Moon, founder of the Unification Church International, is currently on his third national speaking tour and is attracting the full attention of prominent civic and religious leaders throughout the United States and the world. The city of Oakland is indeed honored to welcome Reverend Moon to the community during his speaking engagement in the Bay Area, December 9th. Therefore, as mayor of the city of Oakland and on behalf of its administration, I hereby proclaim December 9th 1974 as Sun Myung Moon Day in Oakland and urge all citizens to cordially welcome Reverend Moon. Rabbi Maurice Davis. Well, he has no support of civic leaders in this country. That's a phony. But what happens is his advanced people come into town before the, the major appearance and they invite a whole slew of people to a free banquet to meet this uh, famous Oriental minister. And whenever a, a local politico doesn't do his homework, he goes to the banquet. And of course, once he goes to the banquet, his name is put down and he is henceforth referred to as one of the men endorsing Moon, which of course he never did. It's standard procedure for municipalities and public officials to give out such proclamations. Rarely, though, are they exploited to the extent that they are by Moon. When vocal opposition groups create negative publicity, or a particularly damaging report occurs in the media, the church purchases full-page advertisements in local papers listing the givers of proclamations as supporters of the movement. most well-known venture into the American political arena concerns his support of Richard Nixon during the height of the Watergate crisis. Rabbi Davis. Moon came out, for example, 
and said that on three different occasions, God appeared before Moon and told Moon that Richard Nixon must not be impeached. And the argument that Reverend Moon proposed was that God explained to him that it is he, God, who decides who's going to be president of the United States. God chooses and God confirms him in the office, and the job of the American people is simply to love the guy. Well, Moon brought that doctrine out, and Moon was ushered into the presence of Richard Nixon, and he prayed for him while Richard Nixon stood there beaming, and then they embraced. Moon purchased full-page ads in papers across the nation, proclaiming that God loves Nixon, and instituting a 40-day Forgive, Love, Unite crusade in his behalf. I didn't find out about being anti-Nixon, and it didn't come out until late December. That's when I started getting really shaky about it, because I'd been raised politically in Berkeley, and I could not believe they were coming out for Nixon. Their line at that time was, he's corrupt, yes, but he's the president of the United States, and we have to support the president of the United States, and we have to forgive him for his you know, debts or his sins or whatever. And, and what they would do is kind of incur guilt, because you were supposed to be a forgiving human being, okay? And uh, so you had to forgive any, everyone, even Nixon. Charles West. The church itself is, is a recruiting organization, so that it doesn't mention its political philosophy as such. Members don't come out and say, you know, we're strongly anti-communist until they've been in the church for a while. As someone comes into the church, the whole theory is unification. We want to bring the world together. We want to bring the world's Christians together. It eventually comes out that they want to bring the world's Christians together against the world's communists. But when Moon comes to town, they'll pass out a brochure that will list their organizations and, or some of their organizations and may list the Freedom Leadership Foundation. They'll pass out a little brochure about the Freedom Leadership Foundation, which says they're dedicated to training the youth of America in the techniques of anti-communism. Moon runs the International uh, Federation for Victory Over Communism, which is, is a militantly anti-communist organization. It claims membership in some 40 countries. The political line is also revealed very slowly here in Berkeley. Now, that might be different elsewhere, but they know that so many people are coming to the House who have been involved in leftist politics in Berkeley that they just can't come out immediately and say, listen, we're anti-communist, we're pro-Nixon, um, We've got a major youth movement going in the United States right now that's anti-communist. You know, they just don't reveal that kind of thing. In fact, what they're stressing is we're communal. Look at how we live, you know. And um, this is your ideal. This is what you've been working for. Most of you have failed here in Berkeley. Look at all of the collectives that have broken up, and we've stayed together, and we're growing, you know. So that's the major political thrust when you first meet them, the ones in Berkeley anyway. Now, elsewhere it might be revealed pretty uh, much initially that they're anti-communist, but I didn't hear about that until much later. And I started saying, now, wait a minute, what's going on here? And they would say, well, we're not against communism as a doctrine of, um, of um, personal life in communal sharing. We're against it because it's against God, and it must be removed from the earth right now, you know, because it's atheist. According to Moon, communism is a satanic force that must be eliminated before humanity may be united under the new Messiah. <laughs> now, tonight, we must know clearly why the Messiah then comes. What was the mission of the Messiah? Now, the Messiah is the champion of God. He came to this earth to do very two things. To liquidate the power of evil and to bring all men into perfection and the goodness of God. So he came, the Messiah, came for war first in order to restore perfect peace. Neil Salanin, President of the American Unification Church, is also president of the Freedom Leadership Foundation, the American affiliate of Moon's International Federation for Victory Over Communism. The organization is dedicated to proclaim that the materialistic anti-democratic doctrines of Marxism-Leninism constitute the greatest single barrier to the fulfillment of world freedom. Neil Salonen. We consider our movement to be the only, the only ideological movement with a vision capable of surpassing the Marxist world vision because 
to us, Marxism is the antithesis of everything we believe in. It's a very materialistic uh, concept of man and his life, whereas we have a very, very spiritual concept. But Marxism addresses itself to the same questions uh, that we feel we have superior answers to. The reason there's been such a, uh, a breakdown in the so-called free world today is that they have no ideological vision. They have a, uh, maybe a political philosophy or an economic philosophy, but no comprehensive ideology of what kind of world they want to create. Andrew Ross. Moon established a training center outside of Seoul, um, which I suspect are in some ways similar to the land in Boonville and the Tarrytown estates where they have their, their divine principle seminars. Well, in Seoul, they have the divine principle seminars too, but they also have training courses in anti-communism. And uh, President Park sends civil servants, military officers, and other politicians for training courses. Neil Salonen. We consider the movement to be a leadership training movement because we want to provide leadership for the country, moral leadership, spiritual leadership. So we encourage all of our members to take the greatest possible responsibility in their communities, but most specifically in our group. So all of our members start from just even the simplest things, leading a small team of people who are distributing pamphlets, leading a small fundraising team, leading a small center, leading a larger center, then becoming even a state leader and so on. In the beginning, women had many of the leadership roles, majority of them as a matter of fact. But in the light of our own philosophy, we feel that the relationship between men and women very much is um, a mother-father relationship, and that the, the role of a woman is to complement the leadership of a man. So in the most ideal sense, starting from the individual and his family, we feel that these are roles that we have to grow into. So quite naturally, the leader's role is more of a fatherly role than a motherly role. As our movement has grown and expanded, members have become more and more mature. A far greater number of leadership positions are now held by men. The church probably aspires to more than moral leadership. One Mooney told me that the Reverend had proclaimed to a backstage tour group that each of the boys would one day be a great senator and that each of the girls would one day be a senator's wife. The movement's strong anti-communist thrust along with its apparent ties to the Park regime in South Korea and Colonel Bohee Park's military background, have led to suspicions of CIA involvement. Church members vehemently deny such rumors, and thus far, no substantial evidence has come to light. <laughs> He seems to, to really exude a, a love for each, each person. Uh, for instance, when, when one is in an audience where he's speaking, you can feel that he really cares for each person in that room, that he, he feels each person's spirit and he sees each person there. This sounds somewhat absurd, perhaps, but Sun Moon does want to rule the world. Um, both he and his followers I think genuinely believe that Moon is going to rule the world. Chapter 12 of Revelations is one that the Moonies are very fond of quoting. Uh, it goes something like, A man-child shall rule the earth with a rod of iron, and he shall be caught up unto God and taken unto his throne. And the man-child ruling the world with a rod of iron is Sun Myung Moon. <laughs> Produced for KPFA by Addie Gavins. Engineering by Eric Schilling. Much of the information used to prepare this program was provided by Andrew Ross and Dave McQueen, who are preparing a book on the subject. Additional investigative materials were provided by Charles West. Colonel Pock interview, courtesy of Steve Wasserman.
And that does it for this week's From the Vault. We are gearing up to produce our annual Pacifica Radio Archives Campus Campaign Fund Drive on all five Pacifica stations in mid-November. You can listen and find out more about that at pacificaradioarchives.org. We will be having encore presentations of From the Vault for the next few weeks. If you would like to join our campus campaign sponsoring school libraries across the country, visit us online at pacificaradioarchives.org or call us at one 800 735-0230. And we always welcome your support in any way that you can. This program is written and produced by Mark Torres and Brian DeShazer. The series is executive produced by the Pacifica Radio Archives and your host, Brian DeShazer. We'd like to thank producer Addie Gevins for helping us select this 1975 archival program for re-presentation on From the Vault. From the Vault is presented as part of the Pacifica Radio Archives Preservation and Access Project, which is supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts, which we're about to release the collection that was preserved by an NEA grant very soon. Past grants from the American Archive, funded by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the Grammy Foundation, the Ford Foundation, in partnerships with UC Berkeley's Moffett Library, the Internet Archive, and other Minds Archives. And we also like to thank our Pacifica Station members and listeners. Our theme music is by Kevin Drum Holiday, and we'd like to shout out to one of the original producers and founders of From the Vault, Christopher Sprinkle. Thanks for listening and keeping our history alive. en fête et en délire suffoquant sous le soleil et sous la joie et j'entends dans la musique les cris, les rires qui éclatent et rebondissent autour de moi et perdu parmi ces gens qui me bousculent étourdi désemparé je reste là You're listening to KBOO Portland at 90.7 FM and streaming on the web, kboo.fm. I'm Don Jacobson, and moving on, we'll be here in just a few minutes right after the news. You're listening to KB.